I wonder if you've ever heard an expression that begins in this way. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Many expressions are out there like this. Some of them funny. uh, Some of them not so funny. Some of them helpful. Most of them not so helpful. But regardless of how you feel about those kind of expressions, we are faced with that exact type of expression from the pages of Scripture this morning. So turn with me to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, which makes this claim, there are only two kinds of people in the world, the blessed man and the wicked man. According to this psalm, Psalm 1, there are only two kinds of people with no in-between. Every one of us in this room would fall into one category or two into the other. That Every one of us is either the blessed man or the wicked man. Psalm chapter 1, I'd like to read all of it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does... He prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord, Yahweh, knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the living God. Well, the book of Psalms is a book you're very familiar with, I'm sure, a book that you probably read frequently or turn to, uh, composed of 150 psalms of various types, some of them speaking of battles, some of them praising God, some of them um, instructing other men. Most psalms are prayers in some fashion or another, addressing God directly. Many speak in the first person, I, me, my, we. Some will even address other people, but as we come to Psalm 1, we notice that none of those things are true of this psalm. It is not a prayer. It doesn't direct any words to God. It has no commands for us. It doesn't speak in the first person at all. And so it's a bit of an anomaly in the psalms, and it forces us to ask the question, why then has God chosen the book of Psalms to begin with this psalm? We know the Bible is inspired. God has chosen its exact arrangement. Psalm 1 is here because God intends it to be here. So why has he intended that? Psalm 1 is a statement, a description published for the world to read, and it's an evaluation of the hearts of man. It's the first psalm because you must pass its test, you must pass through it in order to enter into the book of Psalms to worship the Lord. And it begins by describing the blessed man. You see that in the first few words there, blessed is the man. We use the word bless or blessed a lot, especially here in the South, with bless your heart and be blessed. But what does that word mean? It's a word that means to, to be fortunate, to be in a good situation, to be well off. The blessed man is the man you want to be. It's the man who has it going for him. One illustration of this uh, briefly is in 1 Kings chapter 10. You can just listen. In 1 Kings chapter 10, the queen of Sheba comes to visit 
Solomon, whose fame has spread because of the wisdom that the Lord has given him. And the queen comes and she looks at the wonderful kingdom Solomon has set up in his wisdom, and she looks at those who are serving in his temple. Listen to what she says. She says to the king, the report that that was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. She says, Solomon, your kingdom is better than I could have imagined. And then she says, happy or blessed are your men. Happy, blessed are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Just one illustration of how the word is used that that Solomon's kingdom was so great that this great king was amazed by it. Everyone living in it would be fortunate. But how much more fortunate are those not only living in the kingdom, but who are serving this king? And the same is true here in Psalm 1. This blessing is a, a wonderful situation to be in. The blessed man is, is in the right spot. But it implies that not everybody is in this condition. If the Bible has to come out and say, blessed is the man who... It means that there are some men who are not blessed, which means it is incredibly important for us to understand what this blessing is. You'll notice also it says, blessed is the man. Not to be gender exclusive, uh, that women can be blessed in the same way that this man can be blessed, but it is individual. It doesn't say blessed is the family. It doesn't say blessed is the church or the congregation. It says blessed is the man. A reminder that blessing from God is not a shotgun blast to everyone in an area, but a rifle shot to individual hearts. It means that we have to come forgetting everyone else this morning, forgetting the people who sit next to us and asking ourselves this question, am I the blessed man? As the first psalm, Psalm 1 is a guard of sorts that stands at the gate of worship, assessing everyone who wants to come before the Lord and worship. Psalm 1 is the measure of a true worshiper. Psalm 1 is the measure of a true Christian. And therefore, if you desire to worship the living God, if you desire to understand the state of your soul before him, it's critical that you hear the message of Psalm 1. It's a simple message. It simply urges you to compare two kinds of people to determine which one you are. Verses 1 through 3 describe the blessed man. Uh, Everything in those three verses are speaking of him. And then verses 4 through 6 describe the wicked man. Transitioning there in verse 4, you see the wicked are not so. And on that it hinges and switches to discuss the wicked in all but one line of those last three verses. This morning I want to only look at the first three verses and then Lord willing next week we'll look at the second half. And when I originally told Paul that I was going to preach Psalm 1, he asked if I would actually finish since many of my Zooms I didn't finish. Um, And at the time I thought I certainly would, but then as I spent time and just saw, I think there's so much richness here Um, I've split it into two. So we'll look at verses 1 through 3 this morning. And these verses will call you to consider three characteristics of the blessed man. Three characteristics of the blessed man so that you might determine if you are, in fact, that blessed man. We call to consider the actions of the blessed man, to consider the heart of the blessed man, and to consider the prosperity of the blessed man in verse 1, 2, and 3, respectively. So let's jump in. Verse 1, consider the actions of the blessed man. As we move past the opening words, blessed is the man, the question on our mind should be, how do we identify this man? 
It's a critical question, and we have the answer there immediately, uh, beginning in that second line of, of verse 1, who walks not, and, and on. And so that brings us to our, our first heading again. Consider the actions of the blessed man. How do we identify him? We identify him first by looking at his life. To put it another way, if you can videotape this man, what is it that you would see? What is it that you would see as he goes about his day? What is he doing? What is he not doing? And specifically, this verse will indicate to us what he is not doing. The blessed man does not do certain things. And that's something we're, we're familiar with. If you say, who is the healthy man? One of the ways you can describe him is in the negative. Certain things he doesn't do, certain foods he doesn't eat. He doesn't eat Sour Patch Kids at midnight. Who is the wealthy man? Well, there's certain ways to describe him by what he doesn't do. He doesn't spend more than he makes. So we're, we're familiar with this kind of negative description, and that's what we have of the blessed man. And verse 1 gives us three parallel poetic lines. And you can see them easily. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. They're probably each on their own line for you in your Bible there, helping you see the different lines. And these are all synonymous. They're all saying essentially the same thing. And if you look at them, they each have three components. You have some sort of action that he doesn't do. He walks not, nor stands, nor sits. There's a certain description of of those who are sinful or unbelievers. You have the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. And then you have something proceeding from those people. You have the counsel of the wicked. You have the way of the sinner. And you have the seat of the scoffer. The author of, of Psalm 1 is trying to drive home a particular point here about what the blessed man does not do. He wants it fixed in your mind that there are things that the blessed man is simply not characterized as doing. So he begins by saying, the blessed man walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Uh, to paraphrase that, it would be to say that he doesn't follow the advice of those who are opposed to God. The wicked are the ungodly, some translations have. It's a generic term for people who aren't following the Lord, people who aren't uh, obeying his commands, seeking after him. And their counsel is their advice, uh, their suggestions, their moral counsel and how you should live your life. So to walk not in that way is to have, use that Hebrew idiom of walking, living one's life in a particular manner is not to live one's life after the advice that unbelievers give you. You may remember as a child the, the blindfold game where you would have a blindfold around your eyes and you'd have a partner who would kind of direct you and how to go. You'd complete some task or something. This verse is sort of like that except for the reverse in that the one guiding you is wearing the blindfold. The wicked are those who are blindfolded morally. They cannot please God. They do not understand God. And so why would one go to them for counsel and how to please God? And for that reason, the blessed man avoids their counsel, avoids their instruction. He walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. Sinners are another word for unbelievers, based on the idea of, of missing the target. Unbelievers are those who are not shooting at a bullseye hitting the outer rim. They're, they're shooting at a completely different target. They're not meeting the standards of God's word that characterizes them. And so Psalm 1 says, don't stand in their way. Now in English, we might hear that and think to stand in someone's way is to, to oppose them. 
but in the Hebrew mind, it's a different idiom. It's you standing by a busy roadway with sinners walking back and forth on it, traveling on it. We have several examples of it in Scripture. In 1 Samuel 15, Absalom stood by the way, David's son, in order to talk to the townspeople to win their hearts. He went to the way in order to converse and persuade others. Proverbs 8, the personified woman wisdom does the same thing. She goes to the way in order to call out to those who are walking on it. And so in Psalm 1, it's almost the reverse. is Don't go to the way in order to be persuaded by sinners. Uh, don't uh, go to where you might be tempted and persuaded by those who don't follow the Lord. You can see how it's very similar to walking in the counsel of the wicked. And then the third and final parallel statement there is, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. A scoffer is defined in Proverbs 21, verse 24. It says, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. That's not a good description. And he says, don't sit in the seat of scoffers. Don't associate with them. We kind of get that imagery of, of those who sit at our table, have an influence in our lives. He's not saying don't ever talk to the scoffer. Don't uh, get up at the DMV if someone sits down next to you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying don't associate with them. Don't go along with them. Don't follow those who are refusing instruction from God's word. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And the blessed man gets this. He understands that Oh, he ought not to have close friends who are unbelievers and who would persuade him to follow after their own sinful desires. So we have these three parallel statements. To not walk, to not stand, not sit. There is kind of a visual progression there. You can see a man walking and then standing and then sitting. The point isn't so much a progression because the blessed man avoids all of these things. The point is that we avoid any influence uh, towards sin from unbelievers. And notice that it doesn't say this. It doesn't say, blessed is the man who is not the wicked man. Blessed is the man who's not the sinner. Blessed is the man who's not the scoffer. And that would be true. The wicked is not the blessed man. The, the sinner is not the blessed man. The scoffer is not the blessed man. But the verse actually goes further than that in saying, not even to be influenced by such people. Don't listen to their counsel. Don't stand in their way. Don't sit in their seat. It becomes really an issue of, of authority and of guidance. First Chronicles has a, a powerful illustration of the importance of guidance. First Chronicles chapter 9, verse 13. I might have written the wrong verse. Chapter 10, I'm sorry. First Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13 says, So Saul died for his breach of faith. Well, how did he breach the faith? He broke faith with Yahweh in that he did not keep the commandments of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from Yahweh. Therefore, Yahweh put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Just one illustration of how seeking guidance and instruction uh, can reveal the source of trust that we have. Uh, the blessed man trusts Yahweh and seeks him and his guidance, his direction, his authority. And so he would avoid those who do otherwise. These verbs are, are characteristic of it. It's not uh, the man who will occasionally sin. That's not what he's talking about. This is the man who's characterized by doing these things. 
So as we read verse 1 and we think about this, it's helpful to stop and consider what is the standard by which you live? What, what are the authoritative voices that direct your life? Where is it that you seek guidance? Is it family or friends? Is it politicians or people in power? Is it sports figures or celebrities, social media, maybe even just yourself, digging down deep and doing what you want? None of those things describe how the blessed man lives. The blessed man instead submits himself to the word of God. Which brings us to verse 2. In our second heading this morning to consider the heart of the blessed man. We've seen his external behavior, verse 1. He's, he's avoiding certain things. But now we see his internal behavior, his heart, his desires and his thoughts. We've seen what he doesn't do and now we have a positive description of what he does, of what does define him. And he is a man with his heart set on God's word. And verse 2 will come at the heart from two different angles, kind of two windows into the heart. The first is the desires, and the second is the thoughts. Both of these describing the blessed man in parallel statements. Again, they're, they're overlapping. You can't really divide them. But they're set in contrast to the actions in verse 1, which, which as an aside is a helpful point to understand how we operate. Our desires and our thoughts and our actions are all intertwined. That if you want to know what you desire, look at how you're living. And if you want to know what you desire, look at how you're thinking and vice versa in any combination of the three. The structure of Psalm 1 verse 1 and 2 indicate that. But verse 2 focuses on his heart and it begins with Bud again presenting the opposite But instead, instead of walking in this way, his delight, the blessed man's delight, is in the law of the Lord. This man enjoys the Bible. And it's indicative that there has been a heart change in him. Unbelievers do not enjoy the Bible. But the blessed man does. And there's so many verses that that speak to this. Psalm 111 verse 2 says, Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. We understand that salvation that God has worked on our behalf is a great and wonderful thing that we will, by definition, study God's word and God's salvation to understand him more and to see it. Psalm 19, verse 10, compares the scriptures to honey. It says, more to be desired are they than gold. This is the Bible. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. These are the words of a, of a blessed man, to use the language of Psalm 1. Are they the words that you would use to describe the Bible? Do you see it as gold? Do you think it tastes as sweet as honey tastes? 1 Peter 2, 2 talks about longing for the pure spiritual milk of the word. An illustration that I am much more familiar with now, given my current state of life with a baby at home. But you know this if you've had kids, how incessant they can be about getting their food. And so it's such a powerful picture to use of our attitude towards the Bible that we should be as inconsolable as a crying child wanting milk in our desire to read the Word of God. That's the blessed man. His delight is in the law of the Lord, it says, or or the Torah, the instruction of Yahweh. The Bible is instruction. And there's so many words the Bible uses to refer to itself. One of, it, one of them is instruction, reminding us that the Bible was given not just for information, but for 
influence on our life, to direct how we live our life. Not in some legalistic way, because it's the instruction of Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of, of God that he gave to Moses before redeeming his people from Egypt. It's the name that reminds the people of Israel that God has saved them before they did anything. His salvation was of grace and mercy, and then his law, and them living out that law as a response to that. And never think the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is legalistic. It was designed to be a response to God's grace, and the Jews had, had twisted that, but that was not God's intent. So the implication is that the blessed man delights in the instruction of the Lord, which means he delights in obeying and not just learning. And that's important for us to think because I think one of the dangers we can face as a Bible church is that we come and love the Bible. We love listening to sermons and reading books and uh, we love talking about theology, but do we love putting it into practice? Do we love holiness and obedience and godliness? Ezra did in in Ezra 7.10. says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, same expression, and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra, the scribe, coming back from the exile, was one who knew the law of God. He studied the law of God, but he did so in order to keep it, to do it, to obey it. He's an example of the blessed man. Listen to this quote. It's kind of lengthy, but I think it's, it's well-worded. It uses an illustration of a farmer and his crop to talk about a Christian and his understanding of the Bible and, and obedience to it. The author says this, a farmer should study agriculture with a view to the increase of his crop. In other words, he should study about farming in order that he would produce more crops. But if instead of this, he exhausts himself in inquiring how plants propagate their like and how the different soils were originally produced, if he spends all his time in the theory of that, then his grounds will be overrun with briars and thorns and his barns will be empty. Equally unprofitable will be the study of religious doctrine, which is directed to the mere purpose of speculation. To, to study the Bible, just to, to throw out different ideas and speculations and not to put it into practices like a farmer who studies farming without ever going out to the field. It's worthless. And he goes on to say in this way, it is as if the food necessary for the sustenance of the body, instead of being eaten and digested, were merely set out in such a way as to gratify the sight. In this case, the body would certainly perish with hunger, and with equal certainty, the soul will famish if it feed not on divine truth. End quote. The point is that, that this author is making, that Psalm 1 is making, is that the Bible is intended for instruction, and not just for information. So ask yourself, do you enjoy obedience? There's that song, trust and obey, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And it's very true, it's very Psalm 1. Do you enjoy studying God's word so that you would live a more holy life? Because that's what the blessed man does. The blessed man is identified by his desire. He would be appalled at the thought of simply reading the Bible or listening to sermons simply to learn, but instead he opens his Bible to become more obedient. He listens to sermons to grow in holiness. To to summarize this and draw out the theology of this, there is no biblical category for a Christian who doesn't enjoy the Bible 
Or to flip it around, if you profess to be a Christian but do not enjoy the Scriptures, you're giving no evidence that you are, in fact, a Christian. Because the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. Verse 2 goes on, he says, And on his law he meditates day and night. Desires can be difficult to measure sometimes, difficult to pin down, sort of like a bar of soap. They can change so quickly. But thoughts are much easier, and so the psalmist connects desire and thoughts. We think about what we delight, and so it's natural for him to move to meditation after speaking about delight. The blessed man is not only identified by desire, but by thoughts. So if you had a transcript of his thoughts, what would you read? What would you see? You would see a lot of scripture. You would see a lot of scripture. It says he meditates on God's law. To meditate is to have recurring thoughts about something, not necessarily audible, though it could be. It's not empty-minded. That's a big thing today, that meditation is, is emptying your mind of everything. Or to, to sit and envision success. Those kind of things are big in the business world. Rather, it says what? On his law, he meditates. On, on the Torah of God, the instruction of God, he meditates. There's an object that he's thinking about, and it's the, the word of God. Very much like Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. Very, very similar language. Moses has died. Joshua is now ready to lead the people into Egypt, or into Canaan, sorry, and, and the Lord says this to him, Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And there again we see it's not just knowledge, it's not just that Joshua should be thinking about the Bible He should be thinking about also how to carry it out, how to complete it, how to obey it. And he's to do so day and night. Joshua is told that. The Psalm 1 says that on his law he meditates. Day and night. It's a a figure of speech that means all the time. All the time you should be meditating, thinking about Scripture. Uh, Whenever a situation arises, you should evaluate how is it that you can uh, apply Scripture in that moment. It's similar to in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6 instructs parents to, to instruct their children um, essentially all the time. I'll just read it to you so I don't misquote it. Deuteronomy 6. Says this, You shall teach these commandments diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. The commandments of God should be always in your conversation, always in your thinking. How do you imply and instruct? And this is for children, but you can only do that if you're meditating on the Word regularly. You'll even note there, there's, there's some similarity in the instruction in Deuteronomy 6 to verse 1. You have walking, sitting, rising, perhaps uh, alluding back to that even in verse 1. So the blessed man meditates on God's Word. He thinks about it. What does it mean? How does it apply? And there's really no chore to do this if you love Scripture. You don't have to persuade an engaged couple to think about each other constantly. 
You don't have to persuade a, a football player to be thinking over the plays in his head to make sure he has them mastered. Or a businessman, you don't have to persuade to think about his project and how to succeed. And a Christian does not need to be persuaded to think about the Word of God. So it's another point of assessment to think. What is it that you think about during your day? Are you trying to evaluate your life through the lens of Scripture? Because that's what the blessed man does. And so verse 2 gives us a positive description of this blessed man. Verse 1, it said what he does not do. Verse 2 says what he does do. And it's a two-pronged description of his heart, his desires and his thoughts, his meditations. And again, this psalm is here putting the question to us, does this describe us? Is this a picture of us? And even can others attest to this? It's interesting, blessing in the Bible, this word is always used to refer to other people. It's always blessed is the man or blessed are those. Never blessed am I. I think the point is that the blessing is is observable. The characteristics of the blessed person is observable to other people. Can other people observe how you live and how you think and what you desire? That is the blessed man. His his actions and his heart. And then we get to verse 3. Our third heading this morning, consider the prosperity of the blessed man. Consider the prosperity of the blessed man. Having completed a description of his character in verses 1 and 2, we get an illustration, a picture in verse 3. God loves using similes and pictures, especially in the Psalms, to help us understand, to drive home the point. And the point of verse 3 is that the blessed man is identified by his prosperity. And that's the word used there at the end of verse 3. But it's a word that makes us very uncomfortable, especially with all the prosperity preachers out and about saying that if you follow God, you'll have a Corvette and a big house. But we have to take the text at its word. What, what does it mean? How can we show what it means? Because it does say he prospers. So we'll work through this verse and, and understand in what sense is prospering. It starts with a simile, a comparison. He, this blessed man, is like a tree. He's like a tree. Israel was, a, was and is a very arid climate. It requires lots of rain for foliage to flourish because it's otherwise very desolate. And so to have a tree by a stream of water means it's, it's always connected to a life source. It's always next to what it needs to live. And so this tree is a thriving and growing tree because it's by streams of water and not only is it by streams of water it was planted by streams of water certainly some trees would would spring up naturally there by a river and would grow probably fine but this tree had a hand-picked location because it says it was planted someone chose where this tree would go presumably in in a good and ideal location for it to grow it's not surprising then that it says this tree it yields its fruit in its season a sign of a healthy, thriving plant. And not only that, that it's yielding fruit, it's yielding fruit in its season. It's a regular, repetitious thing that it's bearing fruit. And its leaf does not wither. When the climate gets harsh, the heat increases. This tree is persisting and flourishing. Jeremiah uses the same imagery in Jeremiah 17. Drawing on Psalm 1, he says, Blessed is the man... Same, same start, who trusts in the Lord, who trusts in Yahweh. 
He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. He kind of expands the metaphor even more that this tree will withstand the heat, it will withstand the drought because it's planted in a good location. So Psalm 1 says, this is the blessed man. And we ask, what is the point of this illustration? Why a tree? Why in this condition? What is the psalmist trying to indicate? I don't think we should press every detail for some spiritual significance from this tree. Perhaps you could. But I think the point is clearly stated there at the end of verse 3. After describing the tree, you get to that last line of verse 3. It says, and all that he does. Notice the switch. The tree is not a he. He switched from tree to he, to the blessed man. And all that he does, he prospers. Prosperity. That's the point of this illustration. You have a tree that's thriving and it pictures prosperity. And all that he does, he prospers. Just a note on the translation because I think it's helpful the word in isn't actually there in the Hebrew. I'm not sure why some translations stick it in. It's really all that he does prospers, or, or he causes to succeed everything that he does. It's, it's what he's doing that's prospering in this verse. Not necessarily the person, but what he's doing is prospering. And again, we get worried with, with statements like this in the Bible. We don't really know what to do with them, so we just quickly pass over them and say, well, it's spiritual. It's a spiritual prosperity. That's what this means, and we move on. But we do need to handle it with precision because that will help us understand. It will help us see the depth of Scripture. And so I want to take a little bit of time to, to help us understand the Old Testament teaching on prosperity and then how it's unusual here in Psalm 1 and how the context of Psalm 1 can help us. So prosperity is an important theme in the Bible, especially in the law. You get to the end of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law to the nation of Israel And you get to chapters 28 and 29, which if you're not familiar with, you need to be familiar with. Because these two chapters are a great summary statement of how God treats Israel through the rest of the Bible. It talks about blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And and so much of the prophets are going back and looking at, at these chapters and expanding on them. So it's a critical section in verse 11 of chapter 28 in Deuteronomy talking about when when Israel is obedient, it says, and Yahweh will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of the womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers to give to you. So at least here in the law, prosperity is a very tangible thing to the nation of Israel. And so that's my summary of prosperity. It is national and it is physical. God blesses the nation. He's dealing with a nation and he's doing it in very tangible ways within the land. Such that if Israel is disobedient, he goes on to say that the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind and you shall grope at midday. This is verse 29. As the blind gropes in darkness and you shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and robbed continually and there shall be no one to help you. And the whole, chap- the whole section is filled with curses for their disobedience. So the prosperity here in Deuteronomy is, is a national blessing. He summarizes it in chapter 29, verse 9. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper 
in all that you do. Even there, this very similar wording, prosper in all that you do to Psalm 1. This is the understanding of prosperity that, that goes through the whole Bible. It will go on to Joshua. We, we read it earlier where if he meditates on the law of the Lord and obeys them, he will prosper. And so the leaders of the nation then begin to cause the whole nation to prosper as they're obedient. Still very national, still very physical. Even the book of, of Job would um, contradict the idea of individual prosperity because of obedience. Job was a righteous man, a blameless man, and he had the worst suffering of perhaps anyone on the pages of Scripture other than Jesus. So when we get to Psalm 1, we have the expectation that, that God's prosperity is national, it's to the nation of Israel, it, it is physical, but it's not as a result of righteousness. And so we come to Psalm 1 and it says that this blessed man who's obeying God will prosper in all that he does. It's very individual. And if you're one who's meditating on Scripture like this one, then that would certainly stand out. So how do we answer this? Long way around to, to help show the significance of this. You could just say it's spiritual prosperity and move on, but I do think it goes further. If you look at verse 4 in Psalm 1, the wicked are not so. The, the blessed man is like a tree. He prospers in all that he does. But verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Okay, what's the significance of chaff? Well, verse 5 says, Therefore, therefore, because the wicked are like chaff, they will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The significance that the wicked are like chaff plays out in the end. It plays out in the judgment. It's looking forward to the future. And so, same with this illustration of the blessed man as a tree. While there is spiritual prosperity and spiritual health that we have here as Christians, the culmination and the climax of this is in the judgment, is at the end, in the same place that it comes to play for the wicked, so it comes to play for the righteous, for the blessed man. We read it in, in Revelation 22, verse 12. Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, bringing my reward with me. He will evaluate all the deeds of believers at that point. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. ends this book. What's the meaning of life? It ends it all in verse 13. The end of the matter has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Why? Verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. A couple more passages just to, to emphasize this point because it's, it's necessary to understand the prosperity that is promised. And, and back in Jeremiah 17, we, we read how Jeremiah uses the same imagery. And then two verses later in verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind of man to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit. There's again, back to the fruit of his deeds. So Jeremiah sees this tree as, as culminating with the Lord giving a reward according to the fruit. And one last verse, First Timothy 5. Verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. No godly deed goes unnoticed by God. I think to summarize this, the blessed man is the man who set about doing the will of the Lord. 
he's not walking in sin, but rather he's obeying and delighting in obeying the word of God. That's what it, when it says all that he does, that's what he's doing. And that will prosper because none of his obedience is going unnoticed by God. But there will come a day when God will recognize and reward every act of faithfulness from that man. That perhaps no one else on the world noticed it. Perhaps it was even scorned or rejected on earth. But in the end, when the Lord Jesus comes, that man will be rewarded and everything he did will prosper as he did it according to the Lord. And there's encouragement in this. That if you're a Christian, everything you do according to God's will will prosper eternally. And so if you're discouraged this morning with something in life or something with ministry, take heart in this because God will not only cause you to remain planted like a stream of water, but he will cause all that you do ultimately to prosper when all things are revealed. You will reap a fruit of righteousness forever. So continue on in it. Be persistent in it. All that you do will prosper if you are the blessed man. And so the first half of the psalm concludes on on this happy note. The blessed man is characterized in verses 1 and 2. He's described in verse 3. It is prosperity with a certain future. And this is why he's the blessed man. This is why he's fortunate, why he's well off, because all that he does prospers. With that, the description of the blessed man ends in Psalm 1, and we'll look at the description of the wicked next week. But the godly man is identified by his actions, by his desires, by his thoughts, by his ultimate prosperity. His characteristically avoids ungodly influences. He is known as one who enjoys and obeys Scripture. He's one who thinks about God's Word and its application in all areas of life. And he's one who will persevere like a tree planted by water in the hope of eternal prosperity and a right relationship to God. Psalm 1 stands at the entrance to the book of Psalms asking you, Does these, do these verses describe your life? Do these verses describe your life? Because if so, then with all the authority of of God's word, I can tell you that you are a blessed person, a fortunate person. Regardless of what's going on in your life, and I know some of you have some very difficult things, you're in a good position. You are a blessed man if this verse describes you. Listen to Deuteronomy 33, 29. Happy are you, blessed are you, O Israel, who who is like you, a people saved by Yahweh. Psalm 33.12, blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. If you're a blessed man, you're in a good spot. Regardless of what your circumstances might look like, in God's eyes, you are blessed, and that will bear fruit in eternity. But, but if this psalm doesn't describe you, the answer is not just to do better. The answer isn't just to step up your game. There, there is no instruction in verses 1 through 3. It's not telling you, stop doing certain things and, and start delighting in God's word, start meditating on God's word. It's simply telling you the way things are. The psalm is not suggesting reform. And so to read the psalm and think, wow, I don't do those things, I need to step it up. I need to buckle down. If that's your reaction, it's the wrong reaction to this psalm. The psalm isn't telling you what to do. It's telling you who you are. 
So if you read this psalm and you don't see yourself reflected in these three verses, then it's the word of God telling you, you probably aren't the blessed man. If that fruit isn't in your life, you have no reason to think that's who you are. You're very likely an unbeliever. So then what is the answer? If the answer isn't to just do more, do better, stop doing certain things, start doing other things, what is the answer? Psalm 2 is helpful here. Psalm 2 and Psalm 1 go together very well. Lots of similar wording. And, and both start, and, well, Psalm 1 starts with the word blessed. Psalm 2 ends with the word blessed. Look at verse 10 in Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's the path to becoming the blessed man, is to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the epitome of blessed men. Jesus in his life, if you consider his actions, lived with, with holiness, love, and mercy. He avoided the influences of unbelievers, though he ate dinner with them. He was never persuaded into sin by them. His desire was to do the will of God. He said in John 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. His thoughts were on Scripture when he was tempted. He quoted Scripture. And he was prosperous. He secured salvation for his people. He succeeded at the work he was set out to do. Even Isaiah 53, that great passage that speaks of Jesus suffering, in verse 10 says this, It was, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. But then the second half of the verse says this, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper, same word, in his hand. Jesus is the epitome of prosperity because he has succeeded in securing salvation for his people. And now God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name. There is truly none like Jesus. He epitomizes the blessed man. So come and submit to him if, if you have not, because that is the path to blessing, and God will plant you by streams of water and make you the blessed man. Let's pray. Oh God, we do love your word. It is so rich, so deep, so precise in its characterizations and descriptions of the hearts of man. Pray for those here, Lord, that those who truly are Christians who are blessed men, that you would encourage them in their condition, that you would continue to, to preserve them as trees planted by streams of water, and that in your coming, all of that they do for your glory will prosper. Lord, and we pray for those who are among us who are not in this state. We pray they would not be deceived, but would understand and that they would come to Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.